G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Ardeet. Today is Monday the 11th of December and our topics this week are new laws designed to lock up freed detainees and Bluey's World. Bluey, a new Bluey themed attraction is going to open in Brisbane. And of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk, and then we'll jump into This Week in Australian History, and we'll finish off, as always, with a Forex Bottle Top question. But before we get into all of that, Ardeet, you're in Brisbane. How is the Queensland sunshine uh, treating you? Uh, G'day, DK. Yes, I am in Brisbane, up here, as listeners uh, know, up here for seeing an an opera, the the Wagner's The Ring. Uh, I... To be honest, thought it was going to be a little bit hotter. Now, I, it's hot enough. Don't jinx I, it. Yeah, I and I've been running the aircon in here, um, but it was funny. There's one, uh, what was it? One day last week, and uh, it was only I think point two degrees hotter here than down in Melbourne on that day, or you know, down on the Mornington Peninsula where I am down there. Yep. Uh, so yeah, look, obviously a little bit more humid, and that makes a big that makes a big difference compared to uh, where I am. But I got to say, I'm loving being um, here in the the South Bank part of uh, Brisbane. I'm not so familiar with Brisbane that I can compare it to other ones, but yeah, I'm near the uh, QPAC uh, Queensland Performing Arts Centre, which is where the the opera's on at. But there's also art galleries and a museum and uh, you know, great walks along the the river. Plenty of places to eat, but place I've got in, I'm in has got a little kitchenette, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff like breakfast and that that I can just sort of cook myself. Uh, but I've been really enjoying having a having a stay here, taking uh, taking it easy. You know, I don't. There's no lawns to to mow. There's no garden to to worry about. Basically, all I have to do is. Uh, just sort of amuse myself, do a little bit of little bit of office work with the uh, laptop and and that. Uh, but yeah, I'm very happy to be in in Brisbane and enjoying my enjoying my time here so far. So I've got another few days. There's been two performances, uh, so there'll be two more on um, uh, what day were today? Monday. Two more, one on Tuesday and one on Thursday, and then I'll I'll take off on Saturday morning. So yeah, it's been a Good, uh, good, another good Queensland experience. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, good place, a good part of the world to be. Don't think I want to live here because I do like having, um, I'm not sure if you've experienced these things called seasons. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have heard, uh, what is it called? Winter? Is that how it's pronounced? (laughs) I'm not sure. That's right, which we get down our way. I'm sort of a bit partial to them, but yeah, I'm I'm having a good time up here. What about you? What have you been up to? We've been doing a lot of family stuff this week. It was my my, uh, grandmother's 80th birthday. Uh, So we've had family from all over. Uh, coming in and uh, I had a, f- a few too many boozy nights, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, with with the extended family. So I'm a little bit frosty this morning, but otherwise, you know, it's it's always good to catch up and 
uh, see, the, you know, people you don't see too often. Um, it's been a couple of years for some of them. So it's, it's, it was nice to catch up and reflect. And it's just like old times. So, um, no, it's been good, but lots of family things, uh, over the last couple of days. So it is, it'll be nice. They're all sort of leaving tomorrow. So back to normal. Um, ah, okay. My poor liver can finally start recovering ah. i guess so um <laughs> but no it's been it's been good fun speaking of things uh that haven't been good fun for certain people yeah there are new laws designed to lock up the freed detainees the albanese government has used existing laws passed when the coalition was in office as the basis for a preventative detention regime aimed at locking up some of the non-citizens released following last month's landmark high court ruling on indefinite detention a little bit of context so last month's high court ruling against indefinite immigration detention so far has led to the release of more than 140 non-citizens in the community and caused a storm of political controversy. So the High Court decision oh, centred... That's, that's, that's understating it, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit of an understatement. So the, the High Court's decision centred uh, on a case of a man referred to as NZ. YQ, who'd been in immigration detention after serving a sentence for child sex offences, and he could not be deported. Uh, all seven justices of the High Court ruled that indefinite, indefinite immigration detention for people with no prospect of deportation was un lawful. So a total of 148 non-citizens, some of whom were criminals, were being held in detention because they failed character test for a visa. But since the ruling, they've been released into the community. So you can imagine, dear listeners, how, uh, mm. as Adit said, this was <laughs> caused a storm of political controversy, and it very much that is very much understated. It's been uh, dominated the news cycle for the last, for basically since it since it happened. Uh, currently, the cohort is subject to surveillance measures such as ankle bracelet monitoring and curfews. So, it wasn't just we we didn't just open open the gates and let them run free, uh, as some news organisations have suggested. Mm-hmm. So far, though, six of the former detainees have been arrested. Victorian police have confirmed uh, one of them, uh, one of the detainees had been arrested after failing to meet his reporting obligations as a registered sex offender. Uh, so I think it's it's sort of like a parole type situation where he has to report on a regular basis, probably uh, subject to curfews and things like that, uh, and he's failed to do so. One of the other former detainees is in custody after being arrested and charged with indecent assault in South Australia, and another has been charged with possession of cannabis. So bit of variation there so what's the government done what's the news under the new community safety detention orders people could be held up to three years and the orders would be reviewed each year they are not capped at three years necessarily however the court would need to issue a new order every three years for those subjected to the new orders would be held in prison rather than in immigration detention If someone who has been released has a prior conviction for an offence punishable by seven years imprisonment or more, they are subject to the scheme. The government already has 
sorry, the government already has a ready-made set of laws aimed at locking up people it considers too dangerous to be in the community. The existing laws are aimed at terrorists and designed to keep people in custody after this sentence has been completed. The anti-terror system will provide the legal framework for the new model targeting people released from immigration detention. And under the preventative detention order, the immigration minister would have to make an application to the court that the person is so dangerous that they would probably commit another serious violent or sexual offence if they were in the community. I feel like this is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, <laughs> after the high court ruling, it was very much a scramble from both sides of politics to try and uh, essentially mop up this issue these people are not the sort of people you know th these aren't refugees that are just caught in detention these are generally or most of these people are pretty serious seriously bad people um or you know they're failing character tests for a reason and a lot of them are legitimately criminals not necessarily within the australian framework but elsewhere in the world and things like that so um i don't think I think this is a bit of a win for both sides of politics. Uh, the, the very quickly did this bill get drafted and actually go through both houses of parliament. So it is kind of a, a, a rare moment where all sides of politics came together and actually got something done very, very quickly, which is so rarely happens. It is rare that it, it happens. In fact, I probably would have called that scramble an undignified um, scramble. But look, it is. Uh, it always makes me a little bit concerned when both sides of politics come together for for something. I'm ne I'm never super comfortable with that. I look for for me. It's difficult not to have have mixed emotions about this issue. There's the reality of not wanting to be in a nation that detains people indefinitely. But there's also the issue of safety for the community. And for me, there's the question of where, of where that duty of care is that's most important. Uh, you know, I make no bones about, um, I suppose people, it's easier to describe it as sort of a libertarian leaning towards... Um, my approach to, to government uh, but the reality of this situation is when it comes down to uh, the government protecting the community versus um, protecting people uh, on a what is a legal technicality which you know, not not wanting to downplay the impact on these people on these people uh, I probably have to be perfectly honest and say I lean more towards the the protection of the the community. Uh, you said we've got six. There was a hundred. Well, I think it was one hundred and forty-eight uh, people yep. released. So six out out of one hundred and forty-eight is it's really not a good percentage, and it's not it's not good particularly in view of uh, this came out and people's first reactions were what the hell are you talking about you can't possibly do this this is going to go horribly wrong and by the second or third one people are going we freaking told you so if you're up to six it's possible it's going to be it's going to be higher um yeah it's six as of today and yeah, it's as, well as of, yeah <laughs> the, the fact that the fact that you've qualified that as of t today 
means that you're probably like me and a lot of other people thinking, well, when's number seven going to be coming through and how high exactly are we going to are we going to get? I, yeah. I suppose I'll, I'll throw a bit of kudos towards um, both the the majors. They do seem to have responded to community. I would argue they've responded to community actions to basically save themselves. Be that as it may, that's the incentive they work on. And uh, they've sort of been a bit of a combative mode with the High Court. Now, the High Court, I know people, a lot of people had a, a, go, of, a go at them about this. Uh, it's not their job to legislate. It's their job to interpret the, the law. So yes. I can certainly see that reasoning that um, indefinite detention was deemed unlawful when there was no prospect of people being deported in the reasonably foreseeable future, which then tied back into my emotions about not wanting to be part of a nation that detains people indefinitely. However, it is also the job of the the polis to pass legislation that's going to uh, protect the people they technically serve um and in this instance it seems like they're and i'm couching it for a reason it seems like they've done a reasonable response a little bit of hesitation you're getting in there is uh as you mentioned they've they've basically built these laws hurriedly on a um, hurriedly implemented framework being the the, the terrorist anti-terrorist um, framework, which came in as a knee-jerk reaction after the you know, events of of nine eleven and uh, Australia's reaction to that. So we've got hurried laws built on top of hurried laws, uh, built on band aids of over all sorts of uh, freedoms that were, were, were quashed in order to get these laws through. So I am going to hold off on my opinion about whether or not this is going to be a success because I expect that there's going to be some horrible holes and unintended consequences come about as a result of this. But as I started off in the beginning, I got mixed emotions about it and... I'm glad it's not my job having to having to sort this mess out. Yeah. Something I didn't mention was the coalition. They wanted an amendment to the bill as we were going through Parliament last week where if one of these people were released, for the sake of transparency, the government should have to tell the broader community. It didn't the amendment didn't didn't pass because it's Kind of, I understand the want for transparency, but also it's it's just becomes a bit messy and and there's a lot more labour involved and things like that. So that that didn't get added in, but I kind of I kind of agree with the coalition. I, I sort of do like that little bit of transparency um, about what's going on. Yeah. I, I, look, I understand, and when this went through, and the reason we haven't talked about this before is just because the High Court's decision obviously has flared up public opinion on on it from across the uh, political spectrum in Australia over the last couple of weeks. And it wasn't, this is definitely one of these divisive things that gets people's blood boiling uh, right across the political spectrum. And I do think the 
as you said, the High Court's decision, the High Court interprets the laws. They don't make them. That's their job. So the High Court isn't at fault here for essentially releasing 148 of these people. Uh, They're just looking at it going, well, actually, you can't do this. You shouldn't have done this to start with. So we have to undo, you know, this this non-legal situation. So... It's not exactly like the high court's fault, as I've as I've heard some people around the trap saying, um, but I do think this is a little bit of a success from politics in action and and people getting coming together and getting it done. But you're right, yeah, yeah. I, I I can see this somewhat being abused in the future. Um, Australia's immigration detention system has always been controversial. I think around the world. The way we do things here to deal with illegal immigration is very different from, say, the US or a lot of the European countries and things like that. So uh, holding – look, it's sort of a dirty secret that we all knew that there's non-citizens that are being held in detention indefinitely, uh, both onshore here in Australia and in places like Christmas Island and Nauru and things like that. and it, yep. it, it it definitely doesn't – when I think about it, it doesn't sit well with me when, you know, these sorts of things are going on. I do think, you know, if you've committed a crime elsewhere in the world, you come here to Australia seeking refugee status or, or however you want to do it, um, we shouldn't just open the doors and welcome these people in. I think everyone would agree with that. However, you can't just hold them – forever in essentially what amounts to prison uh especially if they haven't haven't broken any laws within australia and within the australian jurisdiction which is basically what the high court ruling was about wasn't it so um i I do think it's important that we're now sort of cleaning this up and we've got a new framework to work in to say look you know uh if you've broken the law here now uh, you can be held indefinitely within the scope of these three-year terms. Um, and the thing is, is I look at this and go, I feel like we've basically just renamed this scheme. Uh, we've- <laughs> I, I think that's, I think that's a very, a very good comment. And it's yet to be challenged by the, the, the high court. Yes. Um, sorry, not but it's yet to be challenged in yeah. the high court. That doesn't necessarily mean it will be, but uh, yeah. you, you're completely right, I, in my opinion, on that observation that's a renaming of the scheme. Hmm. Yeah, you, you it is a, better, brighter. Yeah, it's just, it's the same process, but now there's, there is a little bit more accountability in that they'll be held within the, the actual, like, legal prison system, not not offshore detention or anything like that. Um, so so they are very much are, quote-unquote, Australia's problem at that point. Um, but the fact that they can be held in, essentially indefinitely within these the scope of these three-year set terms, it, it's basically the same thing, just, just um, dressed up to make it sound a bit fairer than it was. But I do what, – what, one thing that I always have a question, and, and they never really go into the specifics about this for, for privacy and legal reasons, but I'm curious to know why so many of these people cannot be deported back to their country of origin um, and – yeah, that's a good question. I, I had there was there was some analysis like that, and also you know what's what's typically what's a typical recidivism rate? I mean, you know, six out of one forty eight because there's been the highlight sounds like a lot of um, a, a large number 
to me, but I don't know how that compares to you know, comparing like to like. And when we don't get that sort of analysis and what we get as a narrative, I feel like uh, we're probably not being told something for a reason that doesn't serve us. Yes, yes. That's that's a good, yeah. Uh, I feel like there's more going on in the background here that, and, and I feel like this is a situation with a lot of this illegal immigration type stuff where we're only told as much as is convenient for mm. lots of reasons, mostly just for political reasons, for the sake of uh, this group group of people on you know leaning in this direction don't want to know about that, or these people will get up at arms. And immigration's been very decisive within Australian politics for a long time, and I think it's politically convenient to sometimes not tell us everything, um, yep. and sometimes it's convenient to tell us things. Very famously, uh, Scott Morrison, you know, during the last election. Uh, started talking about um what was it the turning the boats back and things like that um the border force is meant to be an apolitical organization a bit like the adf uh but scott morrison definitely tried to use that card to win a bit of a a bit of a last minute uh political favor especially with the right-wing community but it didn't pay off but it is little things like that, and I think we might start to see some of that in the future. Uh, coming to the next election, I think this is going to be something that's brought up. I think this is going to be... Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, I bet you a slab it's going to get bored up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take, this isn't going to go away. Any day. No, and yeah. it, it doesn't matter how it turns how it turns out. It's, it's going to be a focus. I mean, because we're only... Um, oh, when are we? Is it 20? When's our, when's our next federal elections? 20... Uh, 2025, I think. 25, is it? 25, I think so, yeah. yeah. something like that. So, yeah. yeah, so that's really not that far away. And uh, this is a long way from being forgotten. And it's such, uh, it's such an emotive touchstone that even if, uh, you know, the next glittery crisis fear-ridden thing overshadows it for a while... Because it's such an emotional touchstone, it'll only have to just be reignited close to the election, and a lot of you know, a lot of feelings will come back from people quite quite justifiably. So, yeah, I I think it's a pretty pretty easy call to say this is going to be a focus next election. God, I I hope there's no, hope there's nothing any worse that we're focusing on in the next election that's going to make this seem trivial. That would be a problem. You make a good point. Hopefully, oh, this is what, what the talking point is, and there's nothing, nothing else that that's been going on. But um, I think it might be time for us to move on. Let's move on to our two ticks town talk. Okay, this week let's have a little bit of a paddle through history and visit the town of Akorowa on the banks of the Murray River. Uh, Corowa, it's a town in the state of New South Wales. It's on the bank of the Murray River, which is um, the border, most of the border between New South Wales and Victoria, uh, opposite the Victorian town of Wagunya. So if you look on the Australian map and 
uh, like the uh, what they call the political maps, where it shows the divisions of uh, the states and wonder why Victoria is such a uh, a, a wobbly one, one of the very few uh, states that don't have a, a straight line. It's because it's a river. Uh, not a lot of factoids about uh, Corowa. Uh, two appealing ones. The Corowa Bowling Club was used to film scenes for the 2002 film Crackerjack. That's <laughs> hard. Mick Malloy and Judith Lucy. You re- do you remember that one? I do, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, look, you know, not not exactly the height of cinema, cinema, but it was it was it, it was funny enough, and it was a good uh, good story based around a, a, a bowls club. Uh, so look, if you you're interested, it's a very sort of uh, laid back Australian type movie, straightforward story. Um, yeah, it's one of those one that's a bit of fun where you don't really have to. Well, I suppose you don't have to think. <laughs> I don't think there's anything really deep about it. No. Uh, the oh, other one. Gosh, I haven't seen it in a long time, though. So ages. <laughs> I think I, I. I think I can't remember if I've only seen it once or. or yeah, twice. no, I've definitely only seen it once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one was uh, Ford's punt. F double O R D. So John Ford, uh, known as the Emperor of Wagunia. Uh, set on the Murray River near the Ovens Junction, that was on the the southern side of the the river, in the early forties, and in forty three, Ford and a man named Bould examined the examined the countryside around the present state of present site of Wagunya and recommended it to a bloke, uh, John Crisp, who was the first European to settle in the area. Uh, Crisp later sold it to Ford. And with the development of steamer transport on the Murray River in the mid-1850s, Ford purchased a punt which was bought to uh, Wagunia by the steamer Leichhardt. Uh, Ford built two extensive warehouses, uh, which he let to river navigation companies. And because there was so much much traffic attracted to Ford's punt, it led to the establishment of Corowa Township opposite um, Wagunia, as we said. That was the information about Ford's punt that caught my eye and setting it up, which led to this choice. And what caught my eye was uh, Frank Ford locking in on the newly developing industry of the Murray River paddle steamers. Now, with our Two Ticks Town Talk, we often talk about road tracks and train lines and their early impact on Australia. But for this, I wanted to move off land and onto rivers and go on a bit of a journey with the Murray River paddle steamers so as the river murray uh longest river in australia two and a half thousand k's which is about 1500 miles and the tributaries which come off include five of the next six longest rivers in australia the murrumbidgee darling lachlan warrigo and paru uh, so together with that of the, the Murray, the catchments of this river form, the Murray-Darling Basin, which is which covers about one-seventh the area of Australia and is widely considered one of Australia's most important irrigated regions. Um, one-seventh, that was that was roughly about the size of the Great Artesian Basin, something, one-seventh, one-sixth, uh, it was, wasn't it? It was, it was one-fifth, I think, yeah. One-fifth, oh, okay, yeah. so so not quite so, that big, but still still bloody big. Very important, though. Yeah, both. Yep. Both are very important. Bloody oath. 
Uh, Murray rises in the Australian Alps, drains on the west-hand side and uh, scoots along uh, towards South Australia and forms that um, that border between New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, it was first navigated in, 50, not, in 1853 by uh, William Cruss, Russell and Francis Cadell because there was a South Australian uh, competition. They were giving away £2,000 uh, to open up the Murray as a waterway. Hmm. So, yeah, once they navigated and said, oh, yep, we can give it a crack. Looks like we can do something with this. Uh, from then on, there's a whole lot of paddle steamers began travelling inland with stores and passengers. So they'd take out stores and passengers down the, uh, uh, the river and come back to Port Leyden with, with wool. Um, the steamers which came to trade along the inland rivers, they were actually an Australian design, and about uh, 300 were built of local red gum. So, yeah, it's, I, I suppose that was a design of the, the era, but because of, well, I suppose it's Hollywood and stuff like that, I t- had always tended to associate, you know, paddle steamers with uh, American rivers. Yeah, but uh, yeah, didn't know that we had the the Australian design ones uh, over here, and yeah, built with red gum, so that's a good bit of wood. Yeah, that uh, is. That would look really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so they were they were an important connection to the early European settlements and development of that uh, riverland. They built them flat bottomed uh, with a broad beam for. Like for, for for greater stability, they usually had uh, two or or more decks, and were propelled by steam engines driving the the paddles either at the back or uh, more often than not they had uh, the paddles on either side. So to increase their carrying capacity for for taking goods downstream and bringing uh, them back, they'd often tow barges, um, put the wool, sheepskin, hides, tallow, and timber, etc onto the barges. Uh, that was a skilled job, as you'd imagine, because up to mm. 2,000 bales of wool were often carried, stacked in the hull, wow. piled several tiers above the deck. Wow. Yeah, and then there was a bloke on top standing on a makeshift wooden platform with uh, an enormous hind helm that was connected to the rudder by ropes and chains. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's how HNS approved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That poor bugger's up there just swaying back and forth trying to – well, I mean, there's probably other people keeping um, keeping watch and things, but I can't imagine that was uh, a work experience job, first off. <laughs> <laughs> and like all like all good things, there was there's regulations in place to ensure that the steamers must stop at night. But uh, really, few of them uh, few of them did. Most of them didn't tie up uh, before ten thirty. And if there's a full moon, a whole lot of them would just keep travelling um, through the night anyway, as you as you would expect. Uh, the steamers navigated the sandbanks. If they were small ones, they'd just get up to full sl- speed. And just rush it. through it. <laughs> and just slide over the top. Bloody oath. So <laughs> the, the shallow ones, they'd do that. If it was uh, large ones, they, they'd have to winch themselves 
across. And look, because of the seasonal variation in the river height, um, they can only really operate for about eight months of the year. And sometimes the levels uh, just fell so quickly that uh, barges and steamers would get trapped in pools, uh, sometimes for months. And also, too, when the rivers were in, in flood, um, the vessels could paddle any, almost anywhere, but sometimes they'd get lost. And then when the – because, you know, familiar landmarks just sort of didn't, um, didn't appear – so sometimes, sometimes when the floods went down, you'd find uh, boats a couple of miles left high and dry after the floods receded, <laughs> just, <laughs> just in a field. <laughs> um. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, there was uh, looking at this. It was interesting. Uh, there in the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, they got an in, they've got an artifact. Uh, which is a navigation map used by the the captains on um, one of the Murray's tributaries, the the Darling River, uh, in the in the late eighties, between eighteen seventy eighteen ninety. The river courses, the landmarks, the woolsheds, hotels, mills, and homesteads uh, from Wentworth to Menindee in New South Wales are hand drawn with notes about rocks and dangerous areas, and I thought this was a bit clever and i imagine it's pretty groovy in the day uh the charts made of heavy sailcloth measures 39 meters in length and it's mounted on rollers which was wound on as each section of the river was passed that's actually pretty cool isn't it i I thought you'd like that i know with your your, your sort of gps yeah yeah exactly exactly right and that you could write those little notes on it um yeah, I thought that I thought that was pretty. Uh, I thought it was pretty groovy. So, yeah, I, I imagine that would be extremely valuable. And just the idea of having like these thirty-nine meters worth of stuff, and you know, just sort of rolling it. It just uh, it sounded like an elegant solution. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because yeah. you sort of need that granularity to know. Yes. Because the river's obviously changing all the time, so it, from from season to season, or even from week to week, it could be you know different parts of the of the river system can be completely different. Yeah, ex- exactly right. And you know, you, you're probably also going to go past uh, somewhere, and you'll find out from somebody. Oh, remember that big old uh, river red gum that we've been looking at the last couple of months, saying that's going to go any uh, fall over any time. Well, it fell over. So when you're at you know. Baz's Bend, uh, watch out for it because it's somewhere under the water. Because that was uh, that was a problem for them. The because the water was so muddy, uh, you couldn't see the snags. So the, yeah, yeah, the government would would send down uh, little ships with like really high powered motors and uh, equipment to to pull out snags and that because obviously they wanted to keep the paddle steamers going because that kept the uh, trade going, the trade going kept the money going, and the money going kept the uh, the government going. So, yeah, that was uh, yeah. I thought it was interesting, interesting uh, little uh, little artifact. Uh, also worth remembering that uh, large steam engines mean large pressur- pressurized vessels. 
So aside from the snags created by the fallen trees, sandbars, dangerous currents and incorrectly loaded barges capsizing, there's also the danger of boilers exploding if there's not enough attention paid to them. Uh, Why do I feel like I know where this is going? (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler, it doesn't go anywhere well. (laughs) But but when I was reading about that, there was just so much about uh, treating uh, the right amount of of heat, the right amount of water in there. There were so many things to watch that I thought, well, no wonder you have something such as the wreck of the Providence. Now, this is... uh, this was one of this, uh, the Providence was a famous incident of the time. Uh, so this is from an article in a newspaper, uh, the South Australian Register from November 21st, 1872. The Providence left Menindee on November 9, going down steam, sorry, going downstream, wool loaded. Shortly after she came to for firewood, and while lying at the bank, the water got low in the boiler. When they started again, the engines did not appear to work very well, so they stopped them. Immediately they did so, the boiler exploded and went clean out of the boat, striking a tree on the other side of the bank and then rolling into the river. The boat's bottom or sides must have been blown out as she sank immediately, a small part of the stern being only visible about a foot above the water. There were four men killed, the captain, engineer and two deckhands, while another man had his leg broken in two or three places and that bloke who had his leg broken was apparently blown to the other side of the um the bank as well so geez yeah it's like i suppose like sitting on a bomb um, yeah yeah ouch yeah <laughs> now in addition to goods being transported there were also paddle steamers that plied the murray with religious messages and services for remote believers and potential converts, and they were known as missionary boats. Uh, there was a few of them from several Christian denominations, but one of the well-known ones of the time were the two Etona, E-T-O-N-A, um, boats, uh, which, as you'll find here in a moment, got the name from uh, Eton College. Uh, in 1891, a steam launch appeared. Uh, sorry, a steam launch transported a Church of England chaplain to provide services for settlers living along the River, river Murray. The launch, originally known as the Patroller, when the South Australian police had used it to uh, keep an eye on uh, what was going on, was purchased by the Bishop uh, George Kenyon uh, using funds collected from his old school, Eton College. Hence, the boat was renamed Etona. Uh, By 1899, with mission work increasing, it needed major repairs and was sold off. So a new Etona, a paddle paddle steamer, was built at Malang of West Australian Jarrah. Again, would have been a nice-looking boat. (laughs) They certainly used some nice wood. Oh, they didn't skimp. I guess there was a lot of it around, so they just kind of used what they had, but it's prized yeah, timber these days. term, you think, yeah. oh, wow, that would just be beautiful. It's prized timber, like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so build it, uh, where are we? Uh, build it Maling of West Australian Jarrah with galvanised steel side tops, and it had a chapel on board, 
a small galley, saloon, and four bunks, and uh, uh, was, was dedicated by a priest in charge of the River Murray mission. So it was 60 foot long, 12 foot beam, um, and the holds four foot six inches deep. While she draws only two foot of water, being just half of what the old boat required to travel in. So that's not... A very shallow draft, yeah. Really think that's the... That's the the word. So they would hold, they'd scootle on down the the river. Uh, They'd hold services in the small chapel. Um, They they did about uh, eight trips uh, a year. They'd conduct baptisms, confirmations, marriages. Um, And also one of the uh, people involved, that she began a a mother's union with communication by letters. So the mothers, because the mothers couldn't meet any other uh, way, and they'd then get, even though the settlers and that were poor, they'd give the uh, ship gifts of firewood, bread and milk. And uh, it, it it was just an interesting service. To um, to the locals and to the people who uh, were were looking for that that's that spiritual side. Well, I mean, you need nourishment for your body, right? Yeah. I guess they looked at it as they needed nourishment for their souls. So, one hundred. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, so that went on for a while. By nineteen twelve, a uh, number of settlements had built their own church churches. Um, or used a school for, for churches, uh, sorry, used a school for services. Um, parish priests then, by that time, were appointed, and there's not really much of a, a need for a travelling minister along the River Murray. So the Atona was sold in 1912 to uh, Arch Connor, who used her as a fishing boat until 1944, it was then abandoned on the banks of the Murray Murrumbidgee River, where it became a chicken house. Uh-huh. <laughs> Seems like such a waste. It <laughs> does, but that was the fate of a whole lot of um, <clears throat> the steamers and barges. Uh, so that wasn't the only decline. But by the first uh, decade of twentieth century, the river trade was rapidly disappearing because. The roads and rails, as we mentioned in the beginning, uh, were becoming uh, better service. More and more steamers and barges were just tied up at the riverbank waiting for work, which didn't came, come, and they were just abandoned and left to rot. And by the 1930s, there were only about 30 paddle steamers still in service, and by 1960s, the trade was completely finished. So as you can imagine, there's you know, little... Um, tourism sites and that that you can see them particularly around uh Korowa, which was one of the areas that uh was was notable for being so involved in this this trade but like all things technology moved on uh Korra was still there but the paddle steamers aren't and that's our two ticks town talk for this week that's cool yeah we do uh, in my mind i always associate paddle steamers with America going up the Mississippi River and they're opening up, uh, mm. you know, the interior 
using paddle steamers and things like that up the river, the river boats and all that sort of stuff. I guess there's a lot of there's a sort of a lot, a lot of folklore and, and mythos around that in in American uh, history. Um, I didn't realize it was so big here in Australia as well. So that's kind of cool. Did I? Yep. Yeah, and it makes yeah, it sense because the Murray, the Murray is so long because it, <laughs> the Murray, if I'm correct, exits like near Adelaide or something, doesn't it? It meets the sea. It goes Great a long way before it, Yeah, yeah. It, it goes a long way before it gets to the sea. I didn't um, know it was that long either. I, I mean, once I was reading, I was thinking, oh, I sort of in the back of my head, but if you had sat me down and said, okay, guess and tell me where it was, I wouldn't have come close to that. Yeah, no. Yeah. So it's a, it's it's such a long way. So you can see how, because, you know, this area of Victoria, New South Wales, is really the food bowl of of Australia. Mm. Um, it's all, all really farmland out there, except for the, the occasional spot of National Park and that. Um, but when you look at it on a map, it's just like a patchwork of, of farm farmland. Um, so it, it makes sense, you know, that you'd need that transport corridor and it just it completely makes sense to use the river uh, at least you know during those periods um today though it would be really inconvenient because of course we've got highways everywhere rail lines and things like that so um <laughs> yeah. a more di- a more direct route but um, well that's that's right i suppose that's why that that era has has gone but when you also include those um major tributaries that were mentioned you know like the the darling and uh was it Mur- murrumbidgee and paru and warrigo uh i think there was another one there i can't remember and you think how long they are i think it said something like five of the next six biggest yeah. six six longest ones it covers a lot of area it does yeah i think most of victoria really you probably could have got a paddle steamer to somewhere close by and i wonder if that's why like certain cities in victoria like shepparton and and albury and there's a few others are so big and and they are where they are because they're beside the rivers because the steamers could probably get there and things like that so it's probably shaped a lot more of victorian's history than people probably even realize in new south wales i mean yeah some of the um uh, was it like they even they would even be getting um wool from Burke um and bring it bring it back by paddle steamer sorry taking it up i think to uh to to Burke by paddle steamer so you know, it covered a lot of ground a lot of victoria uh new south wales and uh the, that bit of south australia yeah so yeah it's a significant uh, it was a significant um, significant system, but yeah, it, look, there was more in that that I just didn't know at all. So yeah, was, I thought that was pretty pretty interesting to hear about about that. So thank you, Coral, for giving a little bit of a a launching pad for another another interesting bit of Australia. Very cool. Thanks so much. Well, let's move on. A bluey. Tourist attraction is going to open up next year in Brisbane. Bluey, the popular children's program called Bluey, is set to have its own tourist attraction. The animated show is produced and set in the city of Brisbane, and it follows the adventure of a blue healer dog and her family. I would imagine most people listening to this are familiar with Bluey, but if you aren't, 
Uh, you really should check it out. It's very wholesome. It is obviously a children's show, but I watch it with my kids. Uh, it's a bit of an event when the new episodes drop. We all I was going to ask you that, yeah. Yeah, we all sit down and watch them together. Um, and there's definitely some life lessons, not just for the kids, but for, for the adults as well. Uh, the ABC program streams to 60 countries worldwide and has become an Emmy award-winning phenomenon. Bluey, Bluey's World is going to be the name of the attraction, and it's going to be twice as big as any other immersive experience that's ever been seen in Australia. Bluey's World is going to be an interactive soundscape with features and guided experiences, and apparently it's being reported that it'll be just like being in a Bluey episode. I'm so excited to see what exactly this is because the description of it doesn't really... It's hard to picture exactly what they what they picture. You know, uh, it's not a theme park. I can't stress this enough. It's not. It sounds like it's more of an interactive uh, experience. Um, tourism Minister Sterling Hitchcliffe said that there will be a boost to Queensland's tourism economy. It's a huge opportunity for our tourism industry to shine and bring to life a great Queensland lifestyle that Bluey Healer and her family show to the world. world. Tourism and events. Queensland estimated that Bluey's World would generate more than 18 million for the visitor economy and support 250 Queensland jobs. So not a huge amount, but it sort of adds to the the growing list of attractions in southeast Queensland. The immersive immersive size of Bluey World will be built on a 400 square meter site at the North Shore Pavilion in Hamilton, a suburb of Brisbane, and it'll be open to the public in August 2024. It's being backed by the BBC studio, HVK Productions, with funding from the Queensland Government and Brisbane City Council. So it's going to be built, for those familiar with Brisbane, it's going to be built uh, down near the International Cruise Terminal, uh, which Ah, is... Ah, okay. Which is uh, where a lot of sort of temporary events take place, like... uh, we saw Cirque du Soleil uh, when it came in that same area. Uh, there's, there's sort of a used to be a heavy, heavy industrial area that's sort of being revitalized and gentrified, some people would call it. Um, and it's going down there, which which suits it nicely because there's not really a good, I feel like there's not really a good spot for uh, an event, uh, sort of like an interactive you know, four hundred square meters, uh, four thousand square meters. That's that's what just under an acre. Um, it's a big. It's going to be a fairly big little uh, attraction. So that yeah. seems like a good spot to put it. But I'm keen for this. I'm excited uh, to see. I know my kids will lose their mind. We're going down to 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 Brisbane next week. And Bluey, there's an episode of Bluey where she goes to South Bank. And uh, gets an ice cream from from one of the pavilions there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and the kids know exactly where it is. And every time we go there, it's oh, Bluey was here, and then you know, so it it, it is really cool for them to see, you know, the, themselves sort of represented in a way on a on a you know on on TV and things like that. So this is just yeah. sort of adds adds to the whole thing. And Bluey has really become this big. Um, international sensation like i don't think people thought it you know it was going to be as successful as it has been it's, it's pretty cool 
Well, it's only been going from. Look, I, I uh, listen. No, I don't have. I don't have kids, um, but I've certainly. I know of Bluey. Never seen an episode. I should probably watch an episode someday uh, because doing a bit more sort of reading on uh, this, I didn't realise just sort of how it was uh, focused. I also didn't realise that the the TV series premiered only in t- 2018. Yeah, so it's you know, very new. Yeah. yeah, allowing for two years with the you know the coup and that that's that's a damn good effort to become so. Um, they did produce it through COVID. Yeah, they did. Yes, yeah, I, I saw that they had to, um, they had something like 50 people working on it. And, they, and from what I, I read there, they're, they haven't yet committed to a fourth season, but haven't haven't ruled it out. So, you know, that was, um, uh, that was good to have those people employed. Uh, but... There's a couple of things that I I sort of I I liked about it, which is probably you know completely known to to you, but as someone from the outside, just sort of dipping their their toe in to find out a bit. I like the show's creator Joe Brum B R U W M said, "There's no counting in Bluey. There's no learning this or that. Just show them playing. It's to show parents that the kids aren't just mucking around. They're learning to play, learning to share, and generally you can just put your feet up and let them do it." I thought, wow, what a, what a great uh, a great quote uh, and a, a a great aim for it. It just sounded like very sort of fun, very wholesome. Um, and there's another one saying that the program's designed to be a co-viewing experience for parents and their children to enjoy together. And it's got a central theme of the the series is the influence of a supportive family. That's that's your experience. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely I think there's some definitely some parts of of Bluey that go over the kids' heads um that are really aimed at the parents. Honestly, there are a couple of episodes that are like really uh like brought tears to my eyes. They they're incredibly mm. emotional uh yeah. in a good way. And yeah. I'm just like, "Holy moly, this is, you know, this is meant to be like a kids' show and it's it's it it just pulls tugs at the heartstrings sometimes and the, and they've they've also like some of the um some of the themes that are discussed are like very adult uh themes that you wouldn't expect uh basically a kids show uh yeah. you know for, for for younger kids as well as it's quite aimed at um you wouldn't think some of these this sort of show would would touch on some of these themes like uh in in one episode uh, uh bluey's mum uh her sister comes over and it turns out she hasn't been around very much because uh she's been suffering with I think a bit of depression because she, it turns out she can't have children of her own. And so there's this like oh, wow. friction between her and her sister and, you know, and uh, like, and these themes, I think a lot of it goes over the kids' heads, but I'll be sitting there watching and going, holy crap, I can't believe like, this is like a kid's show and they're going into all this detail, but it's just honestly, the way it's written, it's, it's, it's really, really, really well done. Well, that's um, impressive. That's, that's, to, to even put a, to put an issue in like that on in something where you know there's going to be um, a lot of your target audience is going to be kids and parents watching it, uh, and by the sounds of it, it was done very sensitively. Yes, yes, that, that's probably the 
biggest thing is it's it's a very wholesome show at its core. It's it's very respectful of these ideas and things like that. Um, there's also a really uh, beautiful episode called Turtle Boy, and I think this won an award um, where it's sort of like a split episode where uh, Bluey's sister goes to the park with her dad and she keeps finding this Turtle Boy. It's like a toy. Um, at the park over, over a series of a couple of days. And every time she comes, she wants to... Her dad won't let her take her home with her because it's not hers. So her name's Bingo, and she keeps she keeps hiding it every day so that the next day she'll come back and it'll still be there and she can play with Turtle Boy again. Huh. Meanwhile, every time they leave, another child comes and he's deaf. So he can't hear, and him and his mother come to the park and so he's also playing with turtle boy so he's doing this exact same thing so inadvertently they're hiding the toy from each other and it's it's this it's this beautiful because it only goes for like i don't know seven eight minutes something like that they're very short but there's this beautiful story that's told about two people that actually never directly interact with each other um but have have been this story is so intertwined. It's 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 a beautiful episode, and I can see why it won such an award. Oh, that's great! Um, and it got huge praise from the the deaf community in Australia and all this sorts of stuff. So, it's a really cool show, and I can see. I'm I'm actually so pleased that it's become such an international sensation because I feel like it really deserves the praise that it's getting. Um, and it's something that I've thoroughly enjoyed with my kids, but also even if you don't have kids, Adit. Start watching it. It's good. It's a really good little show. Look, I gotta say, uh, well, even before you had uh, made that comment about uh, Turtle Boy and the addressing those issues, I thought oh, I have to watch a couple of these episodes. But uh, I will definitely be getting onto them because that's. I mean, that's uh, that's really impressive. I love that. Just hearing hearing that, just that inner play. That's that does sound like a beautiful story. Yeah, and they've also had a lot of iconic Australian guests uh, like um, Anthony Field, who is famously the Blue Wiggle. He's been on it a few times. Robert Irwin, Steve Irwin's son, Robert. He's been on it a couple of times. Um, Hamish Blake has been on it a few times. I think Natalie Portman. There's a bunch, but they never. It's never like overt. It's just they're just in the show, and it's not. And you're sort of listening, and you're like, "Hang on, is that? Is that who I think it is?" And what are you these? Look up. Are they playing? Are they, are they playing themselves or characters or what? No, they're all just different characters um, in the show. So nothing. It's never overt. You know, it's just they're just a character in in the show. Um, oftentimes they're only on one one episode, but sometimes it's it's a recurring character and things like that. So it is cool. And ah. there's, you know, uh, State of Origin. Um, it's it's very Queensland huh. culture and things like that. So it is quite cool. Uh, State of Origin for our international listeners that don't know, it's a NRL game played between. It's three games played every year between Queensland and New South Wales, and it's very full on um people people that don't, don't even watch the nrl normally very much get involved for for uh, state of origin they become very um, parochial oh it gets it divides families and it does <laughs> in the show as well it um 
because I think Bluey's mum is was born in New South Wales or something. So she she oh, goes to wow. the neighbor's house oh. because they're they're a New South Wales <laughs> team sort of thing. No. So <laughs> it, and it's very funny about how tribal people can get and all this kind of stuff. Um, and my daughter really got into State of Origin this year because of the Bluey episode. Because so, Bluey. yeah. Oh. Well, it's go- it's going to be very interesting, given that there is that sort of culture in the uh, the, the the show, and so many people involved with it who who obviously understand those sorts of dynamics it's going to be really interesting to see how this immersive experience is expressed as a um you know a a construction um as you said it's not going to be a traditional theme park uh and also as you said there didn't seem to be that many details about it but uh, it sounds like they've got some very good pedigree, and I'll be be interested to see what turns up. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for this. Um, it's it's every everything is done in Brisbane, um, I believe. It's animated, voiced, everything from Brisbane. So um, yeah, that's what I read they, too. You know, they, as you said, they've got the pedigree to do it. Uh, that pun is completely intended. Um, oh, oh, and <laughs> didn't, didn't even... <laughs> um, so bring it on! I'm excited for Bluey World. August next year, we'll uh, we'll definitely be going down to see once it's open and and experience it for 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 what it is. And I'm sure at that time, I'll uh, I'll let you all know. But let's move on to this week in Australian history. Okay, because we missed our 26th November podcast, this one's um, uh, slightly longer as well. So we're covering um, the 1st to the 11th of um, uh, September. Gosh, 1st to the 11th of (laughs) December. (laughs) It's gone gone quickly. December 1st, 1838, the first annual Royal Hobart Regatta is held. And it's still going to this day, the whole few days of uh, aquatic events, and uh, I think they get a public holiday as well. 1942, the Corvette HMAS Armadale is attacked and sunk by Japanese aircraft off Timor. What's a Corvette? Uh... How do I describe a Corvette? It's like a smaller, uh, a very fast, small ship. Lightly armoured, lightly armed. Um, they're not. They're smaller than a destroyer. They're generally pretty quick, though. But okay, yeah. So built for speed. Built for speed. Not huge. Small crew. Uh, not. Um, not generally not deep sea long time type vessel but i mean it can be but but generally not hmm. Hmm. okay 973 on december 1st the australian government grants self government to papua new guinea 1976 douglas nichols is appointed the 28th governor of south australia becoming the first indigenous governor of an australian state 
Once again, South Australia. Yeah, once again, South Australia. <laughs> God, Victoria, Victoria. <laughs> 1982, the Commonwealth introduced the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and before the Act's implementation, the various governments of Australia had no obligation to release information to the public because they're based on the traditional Westminster system of governance, which, of course, is fairly close to public scrutiny. I was surprised that that was um, so recent. I mean, I know that's what are we, that's 41 years, 1982, but I still thought that was recent mm. for something that important. Yes, I agree. Yeah. 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 Uh, 1984, the Bob Hawke-led Australian Labor Party has returned to power at the federal election. 1987, our mate Sir Joe Biocchi peterson resigns as Premier of Queensland after 19 years in power, and he's replaced by Micah Hearn. December 2nd, 1811, Reverend Samuel Marsden sends the first large export of wool from Australia to Britain. Possibly got some of that wool. Oh no, that would have been before the um, the paddle steamers. Damn, I thought I had a tie in, but no, nope. <laughs> scratch that. <laughs> um, Nineteen seventy two, Gough Whitlam becomes prime minister, leading the first Labor government in twenty three years. Yeah, that went well. Uh, yeah, it didn't. Um, Nineteen eighty six, Justice Mary Gordon is the first woman appointed to the High Court of Australia. Uh, 1994, Australian government agrees to pay reparations to Aborigines that were displaced during the nuclear tests in 1950s and 1960s. December 3rd, 1797, George Bass sets out from Sydney in a whaleboat with six oarsmen to explore south along the coast. Um... Bass Strait. Yeah, I did, sorry, but it just it just seems so absurd that he's <laughs> he's on a little whaleboat with six other blokes and he's like, I'm gonna go explore the rest of Australia. Like, <laughs> you know, you just seem so underprepared for what was gonna happen, but Yeah, well look, I didn't I didn't look up uh, details about his uh, his preparation. I'm I'm guessing if they're exploring the coast that they probably didn't go too far out to to sea. No. Uh, yeah. But you don't have to. You don't have to go very far from shore to be at the uh, mercy of the sea, as you would well and know, well and truly yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. And I do believe he went, like he went around, uh, like circumnavigated uh, Tasmania and came back. So. Oh, did he? Yeah. So they like sailed through Bass Strait, which is obviously now named after him, uh, like twice because he had to go through it and then back. And Bass Strait is a notoriously, horrendously rough patch of water. Wow. Uh, so and it's on a small boat. Like, I don't know. The people were built differently back in the day, I think. <laughs> well, that's impressive. 1825, Van Diemen's Land becomes independent from New South Wales and the Legislative Council of Tasmania is established and George Arthur becomes governor. 1854, the Eureka Stockade takes place. The Eureka Rebellion was a series of events that occurred during the gold rush in Victoria and Australia and the gold miners uh, revolted against the British administration in the colony of Victoria. Uh, 
there were, it reached its climax with the Battle of the Eureka Stockade on 3rd of December in 1854 in Ballarat. Uh, the rebels clashed with the colonial forces. 27 people died, numerous injuries. Most of the casualties were the um, rebels. Prior to the battle, there was a period of peaceful demonstrations and civil disobedience on the Victorian goldfields starting from 1951. The miners had various grievances, including the high cost of mining permits and the heavy-handed enforcement of the permit system. Well, I suppose what? one day that, Victorian one day that'll police change. corruption. Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Victoria. <laughs> it's Dan Andrews' fault. It's Dan yes, Andrews' fault. That's right. Oh, God, can you can you imagine if <laughs> someone traced his ancestry and he was on the colonial forces? <laughs> God, I wonder if somebody's done that. That would just be that'd be a winner. Nineteen ninety nine, the Glenbrook train disaster occurs on the City Rail network in New South Wales, killing seven people. December 4th, 1851, Charles Latrobe forwards a Victorian Legislative Council motion opposing further transportation, and it's passed unanimously. 1976, the Royal Australian Navy's fleet of uh, of Grumman tracker aircraft destroyed by arson at uh, Nowra in New South Wales. They had the hangar there where there was a dozen of them in there one of them was out for repair uh i didn't get to the bottom of why somebody committed the arson but six were totally destroyed and three were damaged beyond repair so that was a massive blow to the navy at that time yeah I was uh, I was, uh, I was based. Say at, you probably know. Yeah, yeah. I was based at HMS Albatross, which is the naval naval air fleet arm, and um, yeah, it's still like remembered because it was such a big deal. Um, I, I don't know if they ever caught uh, whoever whoever did it. I think it was uh, a base personnel. Like I don't think it was someone jumped the right. fence or anything like. That. It, it's very secure facility. That you'd be very hard pressed to get to get on on board the base without the anyone knowing so right um it must have been an internal thing but some disgruntled sailor probably huh. probably although it wasn't 976 it's only a year after the cia got rid of uh golf whitlam maybe they were still hanging around on missions <laughs> <laughs> they needed to sell more replacement aircraft so yeah, yeah exactly military industrial <laughs> complex well maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, interesting though who got the contracts anyway without getting too conspiratorial <laughs> december 5th 1924 the first woolworths supermarket opens in the imperial arcade in sydney so 1924 that's earlier than I would have guessed. Um, 1941, Clive Caldwell, Australian fighter ace, shot down five Junkers JU-87s, Stukas, uh, dive bombers in a matter of minutes, uh, which uh, was called becoming an ace in a day. He was the leading Australian air ace of World War Two. officially credited with shooting down 28... <laughs> Officially credited with shooting down 28 and a half enemy <laughs> aircraft. <laughs> what? Don't know how the half comes. Now, I don't know whether, whether if you're attacking that with somebody else and you're both 
take it with you split, him the, split the kill yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and he did uh, over 300 operational sorties so he was a busy boy in fact there's a whole lot of details uh, about him that um i'm thinking oh, maybe one day <laughs> one day again put that on the list 1950 sorry what was that I didn't say anything. Uh, 1958, construction of stage one of the Sydney Opera House begins. 1972, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam establishes his first cabinet, consisting of himself and Lance Barnard. So it wasn't uh, exactly a big cabinet, but it was a start. Hey, that's where ScoMo got the idea from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That would... Um... That would ruffle a few feathers making that comment. Uh, 1882. Oh, God. I'm going to have to remember that. Scum. Oh, yeah, he did just exactly what Gough Whitlam did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would go down well. <laughs> December 6, 1882. A rare transit of Venus across the disk of the sun is visible from Australia, and many scientific parties arrive from around the world to observe and record the event. Now, I saw the one in 2012 like they come in pairs and it's every something every 150 200 something years but uh so i had the telescope out there the forecast on the day was um was cloudy so packed everything in the car high high tire tailed it up to uh bendigo which is just sort of a couple of hours out of melbourne and found a place where we could get a a good view because i was determined to get it the because the six of June 2012 was the last opportunity to observe a transit of Venus until 11th of December 2117. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody missed it. Yeah, I was pretty excited. Uh, pretty excited about that, and there was. Uh, I was also happy too because there was a. Uh, we just set up in a, a a park, and there was a couple of people just sort of wandered by and. You could see that they were sort of looking over and didn't quite understand why we had the telescope out because I had the the solar filter on the end, and there was a, um, a a younger mother and her her kid, and I think the kid was probably just old enough that uh, they're going to he's going to sort of remember it, even though he didn't fully understand it at the yeah the, time. the significance yeah yeah so he was able to sort of look through it, see that, and, you know, when I was uh, explaining to them that they wouldn't see it again until 2117, um, it was just nice to be able to to share that that with them and you sort of thought, oh, tuck it away in the memory. So, yeah, hmm. just one of those chance meetings, which was good. Uh, 2002, the Australian government announces a handgun buyback following the Monash University shooting buyback theft all depends on how you define it um december 7th 1915 the evacuation of anzac forces from gallipoli begins and some argue that the evacuation was the greatest allied success of the campaign i don't, i would argue that um yep it the evacuation was a massive was undertaking wasn't it a massive undertaking and incredibly successful i i don't think anyone was killed directly as a result of the evacuation. Huh? Uh, there were men still on the line that obviously were casualties. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you're when you're evacuating thousands of men, and we're talking like, you know, they're getting into rowboats and rowing out to ships and stuff like that, uh, prime targets, and 
the Turks didn't even know the Anzacs were gone until days after they'd left. So wow. incredible. One of the main reasons was because of, uh, and I, we've briefly mentioned it before, but uh, it was called a, the, the, the drip rifle. So essentially they, they would, it, it's, it's, it's so stupid, it's genius. They would attach the trigger uh, to a can that was empty and then above it they'd put another can that had a small hole in it. So it would drip down into to the, the can that was attached to the trigger and slowly over time obviously that can would fill up with water and once it was heavy enough it would pull the trigger and what you'd do is you'd fill all of these cans up with different amounts of water so the rifles would all go off at different times and, and a little bit randomly so it seemed like right. one man could basically be there with say 20 rifles and it could seem like there was a lot more men than there actually were and so the deception around the evacuation was absolutely fantastic and the Turks didn't even realise the Anzacs were gone until they walked over because all of the drip rifles had finished firing and Turns out there was no one there, <laughs> just a bunch of rifles and uh, empty cans, so wow. very imagine, clever. Imagine how bizarre that would have been if you oh. were from on the, the, the Turkish side. Yeah. Aside from anything else, imagine how bizarre that you're just, you're essentially just firing bullets in the general direction of, any, of anyone over there anyway, just as, you know, that's just a thing. You know. But imagine you get to that, there's, there's going to be that uh, point at which you're sort of going to be looking to each other and saying, they haven't shot at us for a little while. And somebody's going to eventually say, they haven't shot at us for a long time. Grab a bloke and say, okay, go and have a go and check it out. And he'll say, oh, I'm not feeling very well. How about you send? No, you go. And they you know, push him over the, the top and nothing's happening. He's not getting shot at. Yeah, yeah. Going over the trench and looking down and thinking, there's no one here. I mean, what, what, what it would be interesting to hear from any of the Turkish accounts, what it was like essentially finding Ghost Trench. Yeah, it would have been very surreal, I can imagine, yeah. Surreal, exactly, exactly. December 8th, 1910, Geelong, Victoria is declared a city. Uh, 1987, Frank uh, Vitkovic uh, kills eight people and injures another five before uh, thankfully falling to his death on the Queen Street Massacre in Melbourne. 1988, in Marbo versus Queensland, the High Court of Australia finds that the Queensland Coast Islands Declaratory Statement, sorry, Declaratory Act, which attempted to retrospectively abolish native title rights, was not valid. December 9th, 1961, Robert Menzies led coalition return to power at federal election. 1983, the Australian dollar is floated. December 10th, um, 1792, Governor of New South Wales, Captain Arthur Phillips, granted leave and permitted to return to England. Uh, 1817, Bush Ranger Michael Howe is caught, but escapes after killing his captors. Uh, 1895 on December 10th. Now, I can't remember if this has come up elsewhere, um, but if it, have, it hasn't, have a guess what the first city in Australia was to have streets lit by electricity in 1895. Oh, I think this is like, it's it's not like, 
I think we mentioned this before, and I'm, it's going to be a complete yeah. guess, but I think it was not one that you would expect. Like, it's no, as much it's smaller not, city than you'd think. Is it like Bendigo or something like that? Uh, it's not Bendigo, but it's that type of thing. It's Launceston in Tasmania. Launceston, yeah. of course. Yeah. Sorry, Launceston, yeah. Yeah. Um, 1915, father and son scientists William Henry Bragg and Lawrence Bragg win the Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, they're the first Australians awarded the prize. They, they got it for analysis of crystal structure by means of X-rays. Um, 1919, Ross and Keith McPherson Smith complete the first flight from Britain to Australia. And 1934, Qantas makes its first international flight from Darwin to Singapore. Singapore, And finally, rounding out this week in Australian history, December 11th, 1823, Richmond Bridge was open, and it's the oldest bridge in Australia still in use. It's a stone arch bridge in Tasmania. Richmond is a suburb of, uh, of Hobart, and it's a beautiful-looking bridge in, with the, the sandstone and 1823 it was built apparently still going great guns so that is this week in australian history and after that i definitely need to be okay it, it's it has definitely become tradition that we have two questions <laughs> so i've got two i think you'll get both of these they're fairly easy um First question is, which species of Australian native bird is the second big, largest living bird in height after the ostrich? Now, obviously going to go emu, but I'm not sure if it's emu or cassowary. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, I know. That's I haven't seen a cassowary before. Oh, cassowary is a smaller... Hmm. My memory of last time I saw a cassowary, I'm pretty sure I've seen bigger emus. So I'm I, I'm going to go with emu. Yep, you're good. right. Good, good. Cassowaries okay. can definitely get very big, and they're much more aggressive. But emus, generally speaking, are bigger. And they got that so. big bony thing on top of their their head that, and really like fearsome looking claws. I mean, emu claws. Emu claws, uh, you wouldn't want to sort of cup, cop one in the, the guts, but those cassowary claws, they look you know, almost raptor-like. You can't tell me that a cassowary isn't a friggin' dinosaur, quite frankly. I... Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, and I certainly wouldn't say it to a cassowary's face either. <laughs> no, no, they're <laughs> terrifying. I hate them. Um, Plus, they seem a little bit smarter than emus. Um I don't think emus are the smartest birds around. They're funny. They're fu- they're funny things. But yeah, cassowaries look to me like they would plot. Cassowaries want to kill you, definitely. Yeah, as soon as they right. see you, they, they they just hate everything and they just want to destroy it. Um, <laughs> emus are a bit sort of dopey, and they you know you could you can have like an emu as a pet you wouldn't you would never have a cassowary as a pet it would kill you as as soon as it could (laughs) um now second question which a 1986 movie was the highest grossing australian film of all time now i don't know if this is still true i didn't actually look it up so i'm just trusting the website i got these from that is true but 
What iconic 1986 film is the highest grossing Australian movie of all time? God, films. I'm shockers on films and actors. Some of those people you named them, the, uh, the thing about Bluey, and I thought, ah, I don't know who that is. Um, 1986, just got to... And it was an Australian film. Australian film, 1986. Yeah, jeez. An iconic Australian film. It wasn't Mad Max, was it? No, but that is oh, a good guess. But that was earlier. Mad Max was earlier, wasn't it? Um, I think the first one was, yeah. Yeah, because I think Mad Max came out when, hmm, was it while I was still at school? I can't remember. Anyway, um, you're going to have to give me a hint. It's got the protagonist's first name is Mick or Michael. I can't say his last name because you'll get okay. it immediately. Oh, God. Mm, yes, yes, I could see how I would get it immediately. Um, uh, is it is it a, a a drama? No, it's like a action comedy. Like an action comedy. I don't know. It's Crocodile Dundee. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm right. I'm now with you. Why you couldn't have. Yeah. Uh... You're kicking yourself. I bet. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> Just for future reference, if you're looking for trivia questions or I've got a weak point, yeah, go, go film every single time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Crocodile Dundee, a oh, personal favourite of mine. Right. Thoroughly enjoy. It the is film. good flick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. It is well done. Oh, that's good. That's that's good questions. Good to have. Good to have one. Good to have ones that sort of uh, a bit of a puzzle. Even though people are probably just screaming at their uh, podcast place, <laughs> yeah. saying, "Come on, you went. Yeah, well, you got half the answer." I'm surprised that you <laughs> didn't get it, but there you <laughs> go. It's kind of surprising sometimes the ones that throw you. Um, so, you know, my, my wife is my, I call her my um, my mobile internet database, uh, <laughs> internet movie database, because uh, she'll say, oh, such and such is on. And I said, and she said, it's got so and so in it. And I said, who's that? She said, remember that film that you saw from such and such where that person played that um, and you liked them? That's the one playing it. Ah, oh, okay, right. <laughs> so, yeah, without her, no, no chance. No chance. Huh. Well, on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us at the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'll just be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks and remember at r slash Australian we are Australian thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her see you DK see ya